Hey guys, welcome to week two. Thanks for sticking with me as we look at love, marriage, sex, and the lies that surround all of those things. Together, the goal here is that we're going to discern some truth because I believe that the lies about these issues are literally killing us. Now, last week, if you were here, we took on lie number one. If you remember, it was that sex is, well, that it's, it's just sex. It's physical. It's nothing more. And so with the help of the Apostle Paul, who addressed that exact same lie that was being believed in, in the church in the city of Corinth, we debunked that theory. If you remember, I, t- I tried to introduce you to a new truth in regards to sex, to battle the lie that it's just physical. The truth was that this is really about that. Sex is not just sex. If you remember, that's the story I used uh, with, about my grandmother's coffee mug, right? That, that the mug was about something more. Well, in the same way, sex is about something more, something deeper, something transcendent. So today, today I want to spend some more time on that concept. Paul touches on this when he tells the church in Corinth, and remember, this is written to a city, to a church, where they were justifying sex and and even prostitution within the temple. He says to them, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so what you have is Paul hearkening back to our creation in the garden and to our very design. And he's saying that sex has something to do with, check out the wording, it has something to do with unity and oneness. Both, Paul says, physically in one flesh, and it has to do with becoming one spiritually. And that all of this in some way has something to do with the Lord. It has something to do with Jesus. This, Paul says, is really about that. And if that seems kind of mysterious, right, if you can't quite get your arms around that, kind of mystical maybe, you're right, it is. To a different church, a church in the city of Ephesus, he wrote... uh, as much when speaking about the covenant of marriage he said to them for we are members of his body for this reason a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh which all sounds very familiar right but then Paul adds this he says this is a profound mystery essentially he's going I can't really fully explain this but Paul writes when I talk about this I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is really about that. Sex is not just sex. Sex is about unity and oneness and knownness and intimacy. And in some mysterious way, it's about Jesus and his church. Which look, I mean, I get. I'd be the first to tell you that that seems a little weird, right? You're putting sex and Jesus and church in the same sentence. It seems, I mean, kind of wonky at minimum and almost, well, almost sacrilegious. I mean, right? Most of us leave our spiritual selves, our spiritual lives behind when we close the bedroom door or when we get off the plane for spring break. But the Bible 
from its first book till its last says you can't do that, even if you try, because this is somehow really about that. Now, let me show you what I mean. God, he, he has a purpose for love and marriage and sex, and it's not merely procreation. The Bible consistently regards these things as in some way mysteriously pointing beyond themselves to, well, to a that. In this case, the that is God's everlasting love for us, for you. The sexual union of a man and a wife is analogous, and you're going to see this over and over, to the spiritual union that God wants to have and enjoy with his people. You see it right at the dawn of creation, because that's where the romance begins. It wasn't good for, for man to be alone, God said. And, and so God made for Adam an equal partner, a, a complementary companion, Eve. And then, think this through, the father of the bride presented her to the groom. And when Adam for Caesar, he responds, and we can't appreciate this in the English, but in the Hebrew in which this was written, he responds to this sight with a poem. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Last week, if you remember, I told you that God is no prude. God's first command to a human being was, well, it was honestly, it was to go and have sex, to be fruitful and multiply. Well, right here, you have the first recorded words in human history, and they're expressed in the form of a love song. I mean, think about that, right? Against the vast backdrop of all of creation, uh, stars, oceans, galaxies, suddenly and then very unexpectedly, the story switches from the grandeur of creation and its size and its breadth to the union of one man and one woman. Adam and Eve are so small and, and seemingly insignificant that they should be beneath anyone's notice unless, unless there's something else going on, unless somehow their mutual love is, is at the very heart of what God's doing in this entire universe. And with this, if we would open our eyes to it, what you can begin to see is that, as Paul said, in some mysterious way, with the union of this man and this woman, the curtain begins to rise on God's redemptive purpose. Their one flesh relationship is the divinely ordained pattern, not just for marriage, which it is, but it is the primary picture for God's relationship with all of us. You see, this context is the context in which the entire Bible exists from its very beginning to the end. The prophet Isaiah could not be any clearer on this than when he wrote to God's people that, for your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. He goes on, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God tells Israel that they've broken his covenant with them. He says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
We speak of marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman. Well, so too does God speak of his relationship with us. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. I could go on, just like, the mar- just like a marriage, an earthly marriage, the union and the intimacy that it affords, it's to be exclusive. It's not to be shared. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, what he's saying in effect is, repeat after me, I, believer, take thee, Yahweh, to be my lawful wedded husband. When God says, I, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, he's playing the part, the role of a faithful husband who longs only for his wife, for us. God refuses to share our love with anybody else. And it's not just an Old Testament thing either. John the Baptist, in describing his role in his relationship to Jesus, said that the friend who attends to the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Jesus, the bridegroom, we, the bride, and of course, some of you know, where does the biblical narrative draw to its conclusion? Well, in the last book of the Bible, this book of Revelation, what is the culmination of this age and the start of the kingdom to come compared to? The heavenly host cries out, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I love how I heard it put this week. Think of it this way. The Bible opens with a blind date when Adam opens his eyes to Eve, and it ends with a wedding reception, and we're the bride. See, the relationship that God wants to have with us is like, well, it's, it's like the mutual affection of, of a man and a woman that are so deeply in love that they promise not to love anybody else but to stay together for the rest of their lives. And so, you see, whether we're married or single, all of us are invited into this marriage, this spiritual union. We are all, in a sense, lovers meant to be a pure bride for one husband. But here's the story. It's our story. It's, it's the story of humankind. While God has been that to us, that faithful husband, we have throughout all of history been more or less a wandering bride. The majority of the passages in the Old Testament that actually use marital imagery to describe our relationship with God, they oftentimes, they most of the time are talking about marital failure, our infidelity. These are shocking passages. One of them is especially shocking. In, in Jeremiah, God compares his people to, quote, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? You see, that's us. We have this voracious appetite for worshiping other gods. We're, we're, God says we're like a donkey in heat. We're sniffing the wind, hoping to detect the scent of another partner. Instead of, instead of walking with Jesus, we, we run towards other things. Money, sex, power, cynicism, criticism. All these other idols that can seduce us with the promise to satisfy. A promise that none of them ever keeps. 
We find similar imagery in the, in the book of Hosea, which begins with perhaps the strangest command that God's ever given to a prophet. He tells Hosea, I want you to go and marry the town prostitute. Now, why on earth would God do that? Because he's trying to give Israel, he's trying to give us a living object lesson of, of what it feels like to be God, of our spiritual unfaithfulness. See, Jeremiah, Hosea, they, they wanted people to see how disordered our desires are, how serious our sin is, and how much damage this does to this relationship that we're offered with the living God. Philip Riken puts it this way. He says that every sin is a kind of spiritual adultery. Understand that anytime we sin against God, whenever we're proud of our intellectual accomplishments or worry the things that he, about the things he tells us not to worry about or minimize others so that we can maximize ourselves or give in to a secret sexual temptation or rely on our own strength rather than acknowledging our own weakness or commit any other sin, we're being unfaithful to God. In every case, we're choosing not to love God, but to love something else instead, which is the same thing as, well, it's the same thing as cheating on our divine, our divine spouse. Yet, with our repeated wandering, what, what does God do with his bride? I mean, I know what I would do with my bride. We know what we usually do when these things happen in marriage. Yet again, and again, and again, and again, this loving God, he forgives and he, he restores and he, he renews and he reunites. He's always looking to win his bride back from their other lovers. I mean, it's even beyond that. God's love, it comes with a grace so, so powerful that it cleanses his people's sin and makes them pure again. Remember that wild donkey story, the donkey sniffing after the wind for another partner? Well, later in Jeremiah, that same book, God uses a very different image for his people. He says to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, listen to this, O virgin Israel, from the donkey in heat to O virgin Israel. Despite their wandering, despite our wandering, God uses a very different image for his people. He calls them a virgin. I mean, humanly speaking, right, once you lose your virginity, you can never get it back. But, but the sanctifying power of God's forgiveness, it restores his people, you and I, to perfect purity in his eyes. See, I want you to understand how deep this is. Are you getting a picture now of what I mean when I tell you that this is really about that and that? When anyone tells you that, that sex is just physical, they're lying to you, but they're, they're lying to you like on a profound and eternal basis. Can you get a sense of the love that God has for you, the forgiveness that he, he longs to lavish on you, and the grace that he continually affords you? We really need to embrace this. We really need to pause and reflect on it, especially for every single one of us who has fallen short of the mark when it comes to handling this very powerful gift of sex. Well, now, it was into this context, this culture, this cultural, spiritual, sexual, mysterious morass 
that God places, and this is the brilliance of our God, what has to be the most astounding, misunderstood, misapplied, and underappreciated book in all the biblical canon. It is the ultimate book about this being about that in all of the Bible. In fact, I actually probably need to correct that statement a little bit. This book called the Song of Songs, or alternatively sometimes called the Song of Solomon, it is about this, and it is about that. It's actually about both. Let me explain. You see, the Song of Songs is a relatively short eight-chapter collection of, well, of love poems. Its title, Song of Songs, it comes from the opening line of the very first song, like Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? It begins with, with a, a very similar he Hebrew idiom. This is a song of songs, meaning that this is the greatest, the ultimate song of any song ever sung. Sometimes you may have heard the book referred to as Song of Solomon. Well, that too comes from that very first opening line where the writer says that this is Sol Solomon's Song of Songs. But Solomon's name was probably added at a later date by the song's editors, perhaps because of the references within the text, or maybe even as a dedication. I have to tell you that it is highly unlikely that King Solomon, Israel's third and final king, was the author of this. Because King Solomon, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So when you are sleeping with over a thousand women, it's really hard to write this book because in this book, the lovers in this poem, they're the only ones in the world for each other. It is an exclusive song about one man and one woman, love, sex, and marriage. You see, the Song of Songs views marriage as a romance and sex and sex is the seal of a, a sacred covenant. The author, whoever he was, he dedicated his song to Solomon in order to cast a divine vision for marriage that stood against the idolatries of his contemporary culture. And we're reading them because I want them to stand against the idolatries of ours. This is a book about this, and this is a book about that. It is a book very directly about love and sex and desire. Lots and lots of desire. And marriage. And it's a book about God and his love for you and for me. You know, starting with the church fathers and then through the Middle Ages, up to the Puritans, the Song of Songs was one of the Bible's most popular books. Believe it or not, pastors preached on it often. Scholars commented on this book more than any other book in the Bible. Now, why do you think that was? Now, my guess would be that some things never change. Do a series on sex, the people are interested in sex, and so we'll fill the pews. Others, though, through the century have, have refused to use the book for anything other than for allegorical purposes and teaching. They've argued that, no, 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 this book is not really about sex at all. It's, it's completely allegorical. It's just about God and his people. Perhaps the most famous example of this approach comes from Cyril of Alexandria, who claimed that when the song compares the beloved to, quote, a sachet of myrrh that lies between two breasts, this refers to Christ in the soul of the believer who lies between the two great commands to love God and one's neighbor. 
I don't think so. You see, the Song of Songs is not an allegory, but it is part of a bigger mystery. The mystery of the God, of our God for his beloved, his beautiful bride, you. So the song isn't just about a man who loves a woman. It is. And it isn't just about a woman who desires a man. It is also about well, it's about the love of all loves, which means that there is a place in this story for all of us. And so what we're going to do over these next few weeks, in these poems, what we're going to do is look for truth, God's truth in regards to love and marriage, sex, and Christ. So let's jump in, and you're going to be blown away about how direct it is, how quickly the song starts. And it starts, believe it or not, with the voice, the perspective of a woman. She sings, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. That's something else. This book right there, smack dab in the middle of your Bible, it opens with a smoldering woman. Think about that, by the way. In many religions in the world, if a woman ever thought, let alone spoke like this, I mean, she could be stoned. And this is what I love about our faith. You know how this book treats a woman and her sexual desires? the same way and with the same honor and validity and purity as it does a man's. No different. Here the book starts with a woman voicing her desire. And I have to tell you, it's clearly not for a Bible study with the king. This is a woman in love looking forward to hopefully a wedding night. And what is it about this guy that has made her swoon like this, that it's gotten her so fired up. Well, she says that your name is like a perfume poured out. There's something about his name. I remember when, when um, Joan and I first got married and she was changing to my last name, right? I remember when we first got our joint checking account, her sitting around kind of practicing, signing Joan Eisman, Joan Eisman, Joan Eisman. But in biblical times, it was more than that. Names had significance that we don't, we don't assume any longer. In biblical times, his name would have, it would have equated to his character, who he was, his reputation, his, his wholeness, his personhood. You see, while she likes how he smells, while she longs for a kiss from his lips, that desire was driven by his person and not his pecs. Yet, there's a problem. The problem, and I keep telling you this, there's really nothing new under the sun, especially when it comes to, to these matters. The problem is that while she finds something about this guy's character ultra attractive, she worries that what he's going to be looking at her, well, he's going to be looking at her differently, through a different lens, in a different way. And so here comes lie number two. Again, it's a lie as old as time itself. She writes, dark am I, 
yet lovely. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because, because I'm darkened by the sun. My, my mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I, I had to neglect. Now, hear me on this. This has been misused over the years. Her worry has nothing to do with her ethnicity. There's no value judgment being put on her skin tone. It simply reflects the beauty standards of the culture that she existed in. A culture where wealthy people typically stayed indoors and poor people were in the fields and their skin would be darkened by the sun. You see, the issue is social, it's not racial. I would say that if this were written today, right, with today's standards of beauties, which are almost completely inverse, she might be lamenting that she's so pasty white and can't afford a spray tan, let alone Botox. Dark am I, she says, yet lovely. It's almost as if she's trying to convince herself that despite what she knows people thinks about her, maybe even what she thinks about herself, Despite how she worries what he might think, she's trying to convince herself, I, 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 think I'm, I still think I'm pretty. Maybe she's hoping that he, he would believe that beauty's more than skin deep. She's worried about what he thinks about how she looks because she can't live up to the beauty standards of the day. Nothing ever changes. You see, here's the lie, and man, we are deeper into this lie today than ever before. The lie is, in a sense, that your cover is worth more than your character, or your mane is worth more than your name. And this lie that undergirds our hypersexualized culture, that it's all about who's hot and who's not, it's literally ruining us our families, our marriages, our sexuality. This woman in the poem, she got her beauty standards by looking at the wealthy of her day. They set the standard, but at least they were real people. Today, we, us, our kids, we're getting our standards not from real people, but from what I would call the evil twins of social media and the impact of, of the porn culture in which we exist. These standards, which are not even real, they're not just messing with our confidence, they're messing with our minds. What we are seeing and taking in and believing every day is, is not real. It does not exist. It is, it is almost unachievable. And yet, somehow our sons and daughters, they believe they have to live up to this. And for many of them, the burden has become unbearable. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you kept up on the big social media blow-up a couple weeks ago. One of our culture's major influencers, major, uh, a young woman with 138 million Instagram followers, who's essentially become famous by posting staged and edited photos of herself, primarily of her body, well, somebody posts in an unedited bikini picture of her online. And as you can imagine, because it w was a picture of a real woman, it did not compare favor favorably to her previous internet catalog. And so, well, within hours, she and her family, they began to make threats of legal action to have it taken down. But the pic went viral. And so, she decided to do two things. The first was actually pretty heartbreaking. 
She wrote a post that was very hard to believe. Quote is, someone who has struggled with body image her whole life, the pressure, she says, the constant ridicule and judgment my entire life to be perfect and to meet other standards of how I should look, it's been too much for me to bear. For over a decade now in photos, every single flaw and perfection has been microanalyzed and, and made fun to the smallest detail, and I'm reminded of them every day by the world. She goes on, it's almost unbearable trying to live under the impossible standards that the public has set for me. She added, you never quite get used to being judged and pulled apart and told how unattractive one is, but I will say, if you hear anything enough, then you'll start to believe it. She goes, this is an example of how I've been conditioned to feel that I am not beautiful enough just being me. Which is really heartbreaking and true. And I think she does feel that way. The problem was the second thing she did. She then posted a ton more pictures of herself and then literally recorded a half-naked video trying to show everybody that she really is hot. Those are the videos and the pictures that my daughter and your daughter are trying to compare themselves to and determine if they are or not. This is crazy. The New Yorker magazine, again, about as non-conservative a source you're going to find, published an article called The Porn Myth. The myth was that the onslaught of readily accessible pornography was going to turn men and women into these sexually voracious animals. But guys, do you know that the research shows that the exact opposite is happening? It turns out it's re actually responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real women. Far from having to fend off porn-crazed young men, young women are beginning to worry that as mere flesh and blood, they can scarcely get, let alone hold, the attention of another young man. The author writes that here's what young women tell me on college campuses when the subject comes up. They can't compete, and they know it. For how can a real woman possibly compete with a cyber vision of a perfection tailored to the consumer's least specification? For most of human history, erotic images have been reflections of or celebrations of or substitutes for real naked women. Today, according to the article and, and what our children are being taught, naked women are just bad porn. Her conclusions are amazing, really. She says the people are not closer because of pornography, but they're actually further apart. People are not more turned on in their daily lives, but less so. She says the young women who talk to me on campuses about the effect of pornography on their intimate lives speak of feeling that they can never measure up, that if they don't offer what the movies offer, they cannot expect to hold a guy. The young men talk about what it's like to grow up learning about sex from these things and how it's not helpful to them in trying to figure out how to be with a real woman. Mostly when I ask about loneliness, a deep, sad silence descends on the audiences of young men and women alike. They know that they're lonely together even when conjoined and that this imagery is a big part of that loneliness. What they don't know is how to get out how to find each other again face to face. 
men and women in the hypersexualized culture that you and I live in, we are all beginning to share one thing in common. Our number one insecurity, you can look this up for both women and men, now has to do with our bodies, how we look. Do we figuratively and literally measure up to these images? Are we worthy of intimacy and love based on merely our sizes? Or because I can't look like that, are we going to be destined to loneliness? You see, the culture has lied to us. They have told us it's about hot people hooking up. It's not. It's a lie. It never meets the ache of your soul, which is why I love what this woman in the song, what she sings next. In her inner turmoil about her physical appearance, the woman in the Song of Songs, she reaches out to this man she loves, the man she hoped would love her too, and she says, tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. What? Notice midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman besides the flocks of your friends? She begins to reveal it, a desire that's actually deeper than her desire for kisses and cologne. It's a, it's a passion that's more intense than, than being taken into the king's bedchamber. She wants to know where she can go and be with the man she loves, not only at night, but during the daytime when she can be seen for who she really is. In spite of her fears, she wants to see him face to face. In a word, she wants something more than sex. She wants intimacy. Furthermore, she, she expresses this explicitly as something she wants with her soul and not just her body. Don't miss the deepest longings of the Song of Songs. It is not for a sexual partner. It is for a soulmate. See, we've all begun to believe the lie that it's all about sex when it turned out it was really about soul. Because sex, well, as we said last week, sex, it's really different. This is really about that. Now, in the song... The man's response is super interesting. Guys, check this out. I'm going to close with it for today. To her question of where she could find him, he writes, If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherd. And so he tells her where to find him, but he addresses her concern about her skin, first and foremost, by praising her for her unadorned beauty. He's careful not to evaluate any other part of her anatomy. He simply declares that she's beautiful, which might include her physical appearance, but it certainly isn't limited to it. And then he reinforces his compliment with, well, actually with a funny comparison. He says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Now, I'm not sure that that compliment translates well into our modern culture, um, and, and certainly not as well as it would have back in the day. I think if I called my wife a horse, I might be met with less than an affectionate response. But notice that when he speaks of her beauty, he speaks of it only from above the neckline, as if he were getting, trying to recapture 
what, what she seems to not believe about herself and what maybe we seem to have lost the inability to capture each other, well, as the New Yorker magazine said, face-to-face. See, this is about this, but it's also about that. This is about this, yeah. Friends, our sons and daughters, we're being brought up on, they're being fed, we're being fed a giant lie. That sex is just about sex, that it's about hot or not, that their worth and value in this world is subjective. It's to be measured against either heavily edited pictures they see on social media or the silicone-enhanced bodies they see coming at them from our hypersexualized culture. We've got to stop. Husbands and wives, stop comparing your spouses to these lies. They can't compete. It's fake People don't really look like that. We need to be people who begin to push back on the lie. We need to not let it in here amongst us. You know what we need to do? We need to make character sexy again. You should, gentlemen, you should tell your wife that you think she is beautiful every day, like over and over and over again. You can't overfill that bucket because society is constantly punching another hole in it. Never let her walk out in the morning wondering if she's hot or not. She is. Wives, a man's primary insecurity used to be about his job and his salary. This culture has changed that. The man in your life needs to hear from you that you desire him that he is more than enough for you. We have to begin to have good conversations with our kids about these things. Somehow getting them the message that character matters more, that it matters more than whatever the cover is, that their name is worth more than their main. You need to make sure that they know they are beautiful and handsome. But even more importantly, you have to make sure that they know they are good. Listen, you want to start simply? Don't ask them when they come home speaking about a boy or a girl if, if they're cute or what they look like or to see a picture. Instead, ask them about the other person's heart, what they like about them other than how they look. We need to train our kids because they're being trained by the culture. We need to train our kids to look past the cultural lies and to the deeper truths of character and name. And then, and then finally, this is also about that. In this poem, as it plays out, you're going to discover that we, the church, you and I, we're the bride and, and this man, this groom is God. Well, here's the truth. We, like the woman in the song, are a people longing for intimacy. But we have a tendency to look for it in all the wrong places. We, like the woman in the song, we're a people who worry constantly over rejection. But the truth of this story is that we, we have a husband, we have a God who, like the lover in the song, sees something different when he looks at us. Paul put it this way. He said, for we are God's 
masterpiece. He's created us new in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Do not listen to whatever lies the world has told you about your worth or your beauty or about your future. Why would you listen to them? They are lying to you. God made you for his purposes to give you his confidence to enjoy his love now and forevermore. You are his masterpiece. Do you know he is smitten by you? Do you understand that he can't stop thinking about you? Stop taking your cues about yourself from the culture. It's fake. It's phony. And start taking them from God. Next week, we move on looking at this intimate relationship. We'll start the walk towards marriage. But before we get there, this week, go and live like someone engaged to the king.